So as we've been talking about, uh, we've been going through this, our first election process as a church plant at King's Church uh, of electing leadership in the church, two types in specific, elders and deacons. And so what we've done so far is we've had a nomination process, and then those nominees are about to go through uh, an interview, which is just going to assess if they want to participate in the training. The training would be next, and then those candidates that go through that whole process will be brought back forward uh, to, for an election uh, as we move towards organization as a church uh, to, have, to become an established church. And this is really a wonderful time to praise the Lord that God has brought us uh, to this point. This is a very big deal uh, for us. And uh, what we're doing right now, because this is our first time entering into this uh, process, is we're taking a deep dive asking this very simple question, what does the Bible say about church leadership? It actually has a lot to say. And then my encouragement to you throughout this whole process is that if you're a member of King's Church, that you would spend time in prayer and even fasting as we moved through this process of choosing church leaders. Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says about the early church, that when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting and committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. So the name of this series I'm calling God's Delegated Authority. How God, who has all of the authority, equips and calls people to serve uh, and serve in His church. So we're taking a deep look at church leadership. And this is a really important issue to talk about because leadership is vital to any organization. Any type of organization needs good leadership. And this is especially true uh, for the people of God, which is the only organization that Jesus Christ died for. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, which has really been a theme verse for this whole idea of church leaders, where, where, we, where we see these words, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of God, which God has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. If you were going to invest a lot of your money in a company, one of the first things you would do is find out what the leadership's like. What's their track record? How are they doing? How do they, how do they service their mission, product, and customers? Same thing if you were going to send your kids to a different school. You would not know how administratively it is run. How do things go in that place? And how about when your life is on the line, if you were in the middle of a platoon in battle, you would want to know what the character and qualifications and tactics of the leader that you were serving under. The same thing is true in the church. Leadership is vital for the protection, direction, and success of the church of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you govern your life by the Bible and what it says about what you should do and how your heart should feel and, and how your mind should work. And there's a lot of information in the Bible about leadership of God's people from the Old to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the patriarchs and you have the prophets and you have the law of God and, and several different types of leader, judges and kings and priests. There's leadership throughout the entire Old Testament. And then the New Testament in Christ Jesus, when the church church is being set up, as we've been looking at that for the past couple weeks, we find uh, that there's a lot in Jesus' teaching, in Paul's letters uh, to his protege in 1 Peter and Acts, there's a lot that we need to deal with to understand if we're going to submit our lives and understand what the Bible teaches. And then also, our calling is to be a part of a church that practices leadership 
like the Bible tells us, to uh, practice leadership and then also to participate in that. Either to be a leader or submit to the leaders that you've chosen uh, that meet these qualifications, right? And then one of the things as well is that one of the main questions of our age from people who are skeptical of Christianity, and I've also found many of the people who are in the church, is why are there so many differences within the Christian camp? Why are there so many denominations? As one man that I was meeting with put it, put it recently, why can't all y'all get along, right? I was meeting with a, a group of men we meet once a month for lunch. It's their pastors of local churches. And what's beautiful about this is there's a bunch of different ethnicities and a whole lot of different brands, if you will, of Christianity. There's Pentecostals, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and we all gather together as brothers in Christ and support and love one another. It's a beautiful picture of what the church is, and it's really been a blessing to me uh, individually as I led that group this week. But one of the reasons that it feels like we're divided is because we have distinctions in each one of those camps. And those distinctions are important because they're in the Bible. That those distinctions exist because people believe differently about very important stuff that's in the Bible, and, but we can all come together on the essentials. One of those distinctions is how the church should be governed. And so that's an answer to one of these questions of why are there so many denominations? Because of what the Bible teaches and different people's interpretation of how a church should be governing. So as we're thinking about that, what I'm trying to do for you is point you straight to the Bible. Say this is what it says about what church leadership should look like. And also I've found in myself and also in the people that I'm meeting with and even in some of y'all a general disdain for what people often call organized religion. And what I want to show throughout the whole of this series and even devote an entire sermon to the matter is that we're really not against organized religion. We're against negligent religion or corrupt religion. But any group of people that's together needs to be organized. So in the series, we've talked about God's delegated authority. We've talked about church membership. We've talked about what an elder is. And today, we're talking about deacons as the servants of the church. And then we'll see a several things. Next week, we'll talk about pastors and women in leadership, that issue, church discipline, what that is. And then the final one, we'll try to address this question of organized religion in general. And we'll talk about Presbyterianism in specific, because we're a Presbyterian church, but then denominationalism as well. Y'all track it with me? Ready to go? All right, so um, one of the things that we have to keep in mind about the church is that it is both organism and organization at the same time, okay? It is both organism and organization at the same time. So by organism, I mean it's a living thing, okay? One of the things that we try to emphasize all the time is that the church is the people, right? They gather in a building, they may have property, they may, have, they may be an association, and there may be organizational aspects to it, but the church is a people. It is the only real spiritual organism in the world, a people of God. But the organisms or groups of people need organization in order to thrive. For example, look, we see this all the time in nature. Why are ants so amazing, right? Ants are so amazing because of how naturally they organize. That's one of the reasons when you, when you, when you bust open an ant pile when you're a little boy, and that's what you love to do, right, is bust open ant piles and watch the chaos that ensues. 
You see all of the intricate tunnels and how they, they can communicate by just tapping each other and passing a scent along. And the organization is what makes the ant special. Same thing with the bee. How thousands of these insects all gather together for it's, it's an amazing feat of nature. And it's about as organic as you get, right? Bees and ants. But you still see even those structures have to have organization to thrive. So the church is an organization. What we've been talking about the past couple weeks is the necessary structure and leadership for the church as an organism to thrive. Okay? How, what structure and leadership does God, does God call us to? Organization is not a bad thing. Corrupt organizations are bad things. Neglectful organizations are a bad thing. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, one of the early churches. There's probably several in the area of Corinth. And he writes to them and says, Y'all are a mess! You need to get organized! Things are crazy! You don't know what's going on! You never know! When y'all gather together, it's, cra- it's craziness! You never know what's going to happen! Y'all need to, get, y'all need to have some organization. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40, he says, But all things should be done decently and in order. Which is like the verse that Presbyterians tattoo on their arm right there, right? This is like, this is like one of our main verses, right? That everything should be done decently and in order and the reality is that what we're called to do as christians and i'm passionate about this is that we balance these two realities that the church is both an organism it's people right you you don't come to church you're a part of a church does that make sense um, the, this, the building that you meet in is the meeting place of the church where it gathers the church is people but it better have some organization or it's just not going to make it. It's not going to thrive. It can't. Right? It would be chaos that ensues. And oftentimes there can be a, a challenge to put too much emphasis on one of those two very real and biblical realities. Too much emphasis on the, org- on the organism. Right? Just, just, church's fam- just church's family. Just church's people. And there's no structure whatsoever. You, you won't last. Because you're like, I can't, I'm frustrated because we never know what's going on. And then the opposite side can also be dangerous. Too much focus on the organization that it doesn't feel real, it doesn't feel personal. I don't feel like I, I know people or, they're, a, or I'm a, they're part of my spiritual family. So how do we balance these two realities that the church is both organism and organization? Well, enter Acts chapter 6. Okay? which is what a uh, passage which John MacArthur, is kind of a famous pastor, calls church organization made simple. I thought that was a great idea. Church organization made simple. So I'm going to read two passages. If you want to follow along with me, it's probably easiest just to follow along with me in your order of worship because I'm actually going to read two passages today. I'm going to read Acts chapters one, verse, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then I'm going to read a few passages from 1 Timothy chapter 3. These are the main two passages that deal with deacons. So let me ask you now to give your attention to God's Word as I read from the book of Acts and also the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Verse 1. In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. 
and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the whole, and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and Procurus and Acantor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In 1 Timothy 3, beginning of verse 8, Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women of worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we now worship you over your word, we would ask God that you would help us uh, as we come to understand who you are and who we are and how we should respond. So help, Lord, the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, uh, the big idea is simply this, that deacons are servants that meet physical and administrative needs of the church. That deacons are servants who meet the physical and administrative needs of the church. And what I mean by physical is material. We see in this passage that these men are called upon to meet a real need of widows who are not receiving the food that they need. It doesn't get any more basic than that. These women have to eat. And the food, that they, were, they weren't getting the portion that was allotted for them. And this is a very real problem. And they come in to solve that problem. And this job of administrating the food to thousands of people is a job that requires a lot of administrative skill. Okay, this is not an easy thing to be able to do to put all the, fix all of these needs. And so deacons are servants that meet this Need and one of my goals today is I feel like there's a lot of confusion within Christianity in general. If you've been a Christian for some time, over what a deacon is and what they are supposed to do, and so we'll talk about that. Um, but the big idea this morning is that they meet physical and administrative needs of the church. Three points, okay? Why deacons are necessary, what a deacon does, and what are the qualifications for a deacon? Why deacons are necessary, what a deacon does, and then what are the qualifications? to be a deacon. First, why deacons are necessary. Brief review, I'm going to try to do this for the next few sermons when we get together and talk about this issue, of, of the three offices or the three positions of leadership uh, that exist in a church. You have the office of elder, which we talked about, which is a spiritual leader. And their job is to, is to help, is to teach, and to hold people accountable to the Word of God, and to, to rebuke them if then they're in sin, so they will stop destroying their own relationship with God and their own lives and come back to the love and grace of the church. And they're to care, to protect the church as a whole from false teachers. We spent a lot of time 
last week talking about that. Teaching, prayer, word, ministry, spiritual nature. They're the spiritual shepherds of the church. And then you have the office of pastor, which we'll talk about next week, which is the main teacher of the word and the main shepherd and the main trainer of the other leaders. We'll talk about that next week from the book of Ephesians. Today, we're talking about the office of deacon, a servant and an administrator who cares for the physical and material needs of the congregation and the administrative needs of the church as a whole. So in this passage, let me talk about the context. Let me tell you about the first six chapters of the book of Acts and what's going on. Okay, So what has happened in just a, a relatively short amount of time is the entire ministry of Jesus Christ has culminated with the crucifixion. And it looked like everything that Jesus taught turned out to be wrong and it's not going to work out. And then the miraculous thing happens. We celebrated just a few weeks ago in Easter when Jesus rises from the dead. And it is an amazing statement of our justification. We talked about that last few weeks ago when we looked at that. But then Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples and many other people get a chance to see him and he's continuing to train them as to what the next phase of God's people is going to be. Namely, the starting of the church. This new covenant people where Jews and Gentiles come together and are one people. And it's fascinating, right? Jesus rises from the dead and one of the first things he does in his new physical body is he says, listen, I'm hungry, do y'all have any fish? And he spends that time with them, different people for 40 days and training them. He tells them to go back to Jerusalem and then he ascends into heaven and takes his seat on the throne. That's a lot, but that's the first part of it. And then in Acts chapter 2... One of the main apostles, Peter, preaches a sermon and thousands of people place their faith in Christ and are converted, right? And you have the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is one of three great feasts that happened in Jewish life. Okay, there was, there was uh, Pentecost, there was Passover, and there was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what happened is there are people who took caravans from the surrounding areas and have packed Jerusalem. Okay? And so they're staying in relatives' houses, they're staying in friends' houses, all the inns are packed. Think Christmas story type situation, right? No room in the inn type of deal. Okay? And their only plan was to be there for a few days, and then the church starts. And the Spirit of God falls, and you have an administrative nightmare. You have a beautiful thing. The church is starting. We're going to talk about how beautiful that is in a minute. But there's also an administrative nightmare. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people now that we have to care for that don't live here. Okay? And are from other areas. All right? And so that's what's happening. Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. And they don't go home. They don't go home. The church just started. There is no church where they are, where they're from, because it just was born. They stay. And we get a picture in Acts chapter 2. I'll read you a few verses of what their life was like at the very beginning of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They, those 3,000 people, and the people that were daily being added to the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. 
and awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing all proceeds as any had need. And listen to this. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let me summarize that for you, okay? Every single day, every single day, this is what's happening. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. They're still going to the temple and many times and, and hearing from the apostles' teaching. That's a large chunk of their day. Every day they're eating together from house to house. The need is so great to feed all these people and house all these people that they're selling their possessions to care for the people that were staying longer than they anticipated they were going to stay. Okay? Um, they're, they're, uh, and then daily more and more people are being added to their number. So think about this time is incredible. It's beautiful. Wouldn't it be neat to be a part of this? This, this incredible movement of God that is happening that is literally transforming a community in a matter of just a few short days and weeks. Fascinating. And then at the same time, a nightmare. Have you ever, you ever had one family stay with you, much less three, for like three days after a while? You're like, it's been nice having you, you know? Get up out of here, right? That You've got now this, this amazing thing that's happening. It's a beautiful picture and it's something that we try to focus on at King's Church, but there's also an administrative element to it that's very difficult. We'll get more into that. Acts chapter 4 and 5, you see purification and persecution enter the church. In Acts chapter 5, uh, there's flagrant sin in the church in regards to the sale of a property and lying about it. And God does a very drastic thing that's very difficult for us to understand and deals with that flagrant sin by, by, by people dro literally dropping dead, right? And so the, the church, in a way, is purified. And then in chapter uh, 4, the church is persecuted, where the, the leaders are commanded to stop teaching, and then they're beaten because they won't, okay? And here's the amazing thing, that through the purification, the dealing of flagrant, with flagrant sin, and also the persecution, the church is still thriving. In fact, it's doing better, right? It's doing better. But here in chapter 6, we, we see one of, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest challenges that has come into the church so far. The church is continuing to grow in the early stages at an alarming rate. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word and believed, and the number of the, just the men came to about 5,000. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That's why people were having to sell their property and possessions to care for this very real need of getting the church started, okay? So the church has exploded. It's at, probably at least 10,000 people, if not more. Same area, okay? And it's so complex. They're breaking bread every day in each other's house. They're learning every single day. They're selling their, their, um, their possession. And the apostles are not only doing the teaching, okay, the disciples, they're not only doing the teaching, they're collecting the money, and distributing it. The burden of their leadership is growing at an alarming rate. And here's the first problem. The, the, the Hebrews are only taking care of their widows. Now in this society, 
Back in these days, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for women, especially unmarried or widowed women, to make money. So oftentimes, poverty was the next thing that happened if your husband died. Okay? And so that's why God in the Old Testament and the New builds these mechanisms to take care of orphans and widows. God calls families to take care of their own, right? And I, in fact, in, in, um, in Timothy, this says that you're worse than an unbeliever if you're not willing to help and take care of your family. But orphans and widows don't have family. That's the problem. And so the church was stepping in to care for these, but there was only so much bread to go around, and they were taking care of their own. And the, the Greek or, or Hellenistic women were being left out. They weren't getting to eat. This is a huge problem. And it's really symptomatic of a much bigger problem uh, that's happening here uh, in the midst of this, right? One of the reasons this is so, such a problem is because God's character is the care for the needy, and they weren't doing that. They weren't doing a good job. The second reason is because it's causing division and dissension and disunity in the church for the first time. This is the real threat to the church. Not persecution, not purification. Historically, you, you, whenever the church is persecuted, maybe from a governmental position, the church thrives. It's one of the best things that can happen to the church is persecution. Now, we don't invite it or pray for it, but the reality is, historically, it really purifies and and strengthens the church of Jesus Christ. But complaining and division and disunity, now that's a real threat. Paul in in, in Philippians uh, says this, If you have any encouragement from being united to Christ, any comfort from His love, if any fellowship... Uh, from the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Basically says, if you've received anything from me, if you've received anything from the gospel, if you've received anything from the church or God himself, then do this. Then make my joy complete and be like-minded and have the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. Be unified. This is a real threat. You're not taking care of, of the widows from my type of people, right? Um, well, I got to take the, care of the widows of my type of people. Right? You're seeing this division that has a chance to split the beautiful thing that God is doing. And remember, the goal here was that these believers would then go out into the world, which happens later on in the book of Acts. Okay? In Exodus chapter 16, after God had delivered people miraculously from Egypt, you find them grumbling and complaining. Huge threat. Okay? Huge threat uh, to the church. But really, what this widow situation is showing is that there's actually a much greater problem that's happening than the fact that these ladies aren't getting food. The real problem that's happening is the burden of leadership is too much for the disciples of Jesus Christ. The burden of leadership is too much for the apostles to manage. And any time that happens, you ever felt stretched? Like you just got a lot of things to do and you're having to, to juggle a lot of balls or keep a lot of plates spinning at the same time, you feel stretched, what tends to happen is that you drop them all or you do every one adequately or poorly and you don't do anything really well. That's the threat that's about to happen here. There's so much need that they cannot do it all. There's so much need that they cannot do it all. They, they have a great need and they have a decision to make. Just the teaching burden alone for thousands of people was enough, much less collecting the money, organizing the groups, and administrating all of the tasks that need to do. And so they they make a decision, and we see here the birth of one of the offices of the church, which is a deacon. Uh, They said the greatest need that people have 
is to love God and to know God. We have to teach. We have to teach. But someone's got to take care of this. The apostles were the ones who were personally taught by Jesus and commissioned to make disciples. They had to teach. Everything's at stake. If they don't teach the reality of Christianity, Christianity dies. Okay? This, this is a huge thing that's happening. They have to teach the Word, and they have to spend time in prayer. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God and prayer in order to wait on tables. They needed to teach, and they also needed to pray. They needed wisdom from God. They needed wisdom to lead the church. In order to teach someone all of the things, they had to know God personally. And one of the ways that happens is through prayer. And then God, through prayer, is the one that gives them the power to speak the Word of God so boldly. And they were spread way too thin. As a pastor of King's Church, one of my most important jobs, if not the most important job, and the biggest chunk of my time is spent on preparing to teach the Word of God. Because Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but on the very Word of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week, but that's what's at stake. But here's the other reality. There are other real needs that need to be met. This is one of them. And so enter in this, um, the deacon and the role of the deacon. In many ways, if these administrative needs and the care for those people in the church, if we don't solve that problem, the church is going to fall apart. Okay? So that's why the office of deacon is necessary. And they say, listen, take a vote among yourselves. Choose men of these kind of character, and we're going to delegate this responsibility to them. So that's why a deacon is necessary, okay? Or church organization made simple. Someone's got to teach and care for people spiritually. Someone's got to care for people physically and the church as a whole administratively. All right, tracking with me? Point number two, what a deacon does. So they, they call in this passage, um, the apostles call the people to elect these servants to take care of, um, of the physical needs. It says it would not be right for us to neglect the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, what does that phrase mean, wait on tables? Well, it could mean two th one of two things, or both. It could mean literally like a waiter, right? Like serving the bread to widows. Or it could mean managing the collecting of money, right? The tables where they would have collected money. Same words used when Jesus overturns the money tables uh, in the Gospels, okay? So it could be the collecting of money, or it could be the actual serving of the food, or both, right? But the reality is this takes so much administration um, to pull off. And he says, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. And here's what's going to happen. The ministry of the Word, the teaching and the proclamation of the Gospel and the, and the Bible is going to continue to thrive. In fact, it's about to get better. And then taking care of very real needs in the church is about also to get better at the same time when deacons come into the picture. Uh, it says the apostles laid their hands on them, uh, that's the phrase that's commonly used in the Bible for ordination. When you lay your hands on someone, it's a picture of unity and solidarity. Okay? Whenever we ordain our first elders and deacons in this church, you'll see that image. 
It's a beautiful image, again, of unity and solidarity. It happened to Timothy when he was ordained to go uh, into the ministry, and it happens to uh, these first men. That, then there's partnership between these two groups. Give us a healthy and thriving church. So what's the result? Acts chapter 6, verse 7. I love this. As a result of deacons coming in, this is an important job, okay? As a result of deacons coming in, it says the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's a huge thing. Priests would, who continually made sacrifices would really struggle with this idea that you only needed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover your sin. But it's interesting in seeing how this new church is coming together. Uh, it's one of the things that leads to their conversion as the word of God continues to spread. So what does this look like um, today for us? Deacon's responsibility is very similar uh, to what happens in the book of Acts. Right? Again, that's why we're spending time doing that. Their job is to care for those in the church that have material needs that can't be met by their family and also to care for the administration, uh, the administrative needs of the church. Oftentimes, when you get a group of people together in a church, there's a lot of things that need to happen. There's facility management. There's, there's a church building in many opportunities. And if you didn't have these things, then the church wouldn't be able to meet and flourish. For many of you, you showed up this morning, and you're able to worship God, and you don't know the two and a half hours of setup that went on before that. And all the preparation that happened so that the church can meet together and worship and sing and hear from God's Word, right? The service that happened there makes the beautiful reality of church worship possible. It's one of the things that deacons help to do in addition to caring uh, for the poor within, uh, within the church. In this particular scenario, think about all the things that had to happen to make this thing work. Who's cooking the bread? To which houses are they going? When is it going to be delivered? How do you pick it up? How do you get the word out? Where's the money going? Who are you collecting money from? From thousands of people. There can't just be one table, right? That'd be longer than a ride at Disney World, right? I mean, there's, there's got to be all this organization and administration that happens. So these men need to be gifted in administrative tasks. They also need to have a heart of compassion that wants to deal with the poor, which leads us to our third point this morning. What are the qualifications for a deacon? From Acts chapter 6, these have to be men of the Spirit. In other words, they have to be grounded in their faith and devotion to God and connected to God. They have to be characterized by God's character, which is what the Holy Spirit does to us. Okay? Um, they were in charge of lots of money. And when you're in charge of lots of money, that brings temptation. Think Judas. The one who betrayed Jesus himself. What, what was his job? Do y'all remember? He was in charge of the money. Okay? It's one of the things that corrupted his heart. He sold out the Lord of glory for money. Okay? So deacons being in charge of, of this money have to be men of character. Their job was critical to the mission of the church. Jesus said that you will be known by your love for who? For one another. Right? And this is one of the ways the church exercises love for one another is through ministry to the least of these among them, right? They had to be men of wisdom because this job requires skill and precision. It wasn't a small task. These seven men were chosen. Um, one of the reasons that the seven, I think, were chosen is so that there will always be a majority vote, right? Because if there were six, there could be a split, 
right? Um, but there's, there, that's one reason why it's an odd number. Fascinating here is that these men were chosen by the church. There was a fair election process that happened, and they chose these men. And another thing that's fascinating is that all seven names are Greek names. Isn't that interesting? Right? They're all seven names or Greek names to take care of the Greek widows, right? Uh, that's here. That in other words, that the, the ones who had most at stake in the ministry are the ones who were leading the ministry. And then they were also men of, of good reputation because when they brought these names forward, everybody was like, oh yeah, those guys can handle it. It said it pleased the whole group. Have you ever seen a decision that pleased the whole group? Right? You know? But these men had such a great character that everybody's like, oh yeah, those guys, definitely. Those are the ones who need to handle this situation. And then finally, in that First Timothy passage, we read that, that uh, these are men who are worthy of respect. They have a proven track record of solving problems and of having compassion. That they were sincere, or maybe in one of your translations it says not double-tongued. In other words, they don't say one thing and do another, speaking out of two tongues, if you will. But they're men of sincere faith. They don't indulge in too much wine. They're self-controlled and, con and controlled by God and none under the influence of anything else. They don't pursue dishonest gain. They, have a, they are characterized when they're in charge of money of doing the right thing. This is important because they're in charge of the money of the church. Okay? Um, and then this, this last, this, and then it says they must be tested. In other words, they've got to have some kind of experience handling people and money. Right? And then the last thing here is they must, this says in the First Timothy passage, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And I mention this simply to say that, this, that even though their, their, their job is to help the administrative needs, that's not an unspiritual task. They needed to be connected to God because even in helping take care of physical needs of the church or administrative needs of the church, it, is a, it still leads to the spiritual flourishing. And these men, while they don't have to primarily be gifted to teach, that's the job of an elder, you see right after Acts chapter 6 that one of these deacons preaches and people are led to the Lord. Philip, another one of these deacons, leads someone to Christ. That elders and deacons, even though, for example, a deacon, their main job might not be to teach, every Christian has responsibility of sharing the gospel with other people. Every Christian has responsibility of sharing the gospel with other people. Every Christian has the responsibility of sharing the gospel with other people. And we see that, uh, uh, especially of these men uh, who serve the church in, in this passage. And they're also to be managers of their own household. 1 Timothy 3, verse 12 said, Let uh, each deacon manage their, their households well. Now, we're going to deal with this more specifically um, whenever, in, a, in a sermon in a few weeks, but I just want to do a little quick throw out here is what about women in, as deacons, okay? Um, we, the elder, the office of elder and pastor is, is for men, biblically, but what about the office of, of elder and deacon? This, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, 
sober-minded and faithful in all things. That word, wives, gune, could also be translated women, as in deaconesses. Acts chapter 16, there's a very, very, very faithful and courageous woman, Phoebe, mentioned. And, and the translation of, of her as a servant could also be looked at as deaconess. Okay, And so... The, in the Christian community and in the Presbyterian Church in general, people go back and forth on this issue. In our denomination, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, it's left up to each individual church whether or not they want to have uh, women deacons or not. Okay? So again, we'll address this issue, um, we'll address this issue a, a little bit later, but the question is, uh, can women serve as deacons uh, in the church? At the, at the moment... Uh, one of the things that I want to do is, is, is to put the first class of leaders in at the church and then let us together take a deep look at this issue because it is, it seems to me to be an issue that people go back and forth on. So we're still in the process of praying through that issue specifically because, again, it's a matter, uh, a matter of interpretation. A few weeks, we'll deal with that in more detail. Not going to dive deep into that here, but just want to mention it specifically because I read that verse. So let me summarize. All right. Summary is just like Christian, just like elders rather, their qualifications are maturity as believers in Christ. They need to be they need to have character, worthy of respect, blameless but not perfect, right? They need to be have conviction, hold to a deep faith and live a life of commitment, and they also need to have competency the ability to meet these administrative needs and have the mercy that they need to care for people who are needy, okay? This is church organization made simple. You see, people have very real material needs. The church as an organization has very real organizational needs. And God has allowed to care for people's souls and minds and the office of elder and pastor and also people's bodies and hearts and circumstances in the office of deacon. And that, that's what we have here. Someone who serve, wants to serve in this type of service, they do it because they were made to, they were gifted to, and it's one of the purposes they feel. And then the final thing I'll mention is at the last verse of the Timothy passage, it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and a great confidence or assurance in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. That with this office comes respect and an assurance of salvation, a closeness to God as one of the rewards. And it's also patterned after the life of Jesus himself. And he and his teaching in Mark chapter 10 he says this, but you're not going to don't lead like the other people in the world lead, but among you whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The picture of deacon in the scripture is a picture of Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven and sacrificed himself for you that you may know. And if deacons exercise that gifting and passion in the life of the church to help lead you and the people in the communities around you to Christ and into the church of Jesus Christ as well, to experience God and Christ in his fullness. Amen? Father in heaven, as we uh, go through this series, uh, we, I hope, are, are blown away 
by how you have cared for us in Jesus Christ and giving us salvation, and also how you care for the church, and you care for us in many ways through the church and the leadership that you've given her. Help us, God, to be uh, a church that loves people well, all of them, and all of their needs, their spiritual and physical needs. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.